I'm Lisa Bryant. I'm Leanne Gibbs. And I'm Liam McNicholas. And this is the Early Education Show. A fortnightly look at the policy, politics and practice of Australia's early education sector. The COVID-19 pandemic has been described as a spotlight, shining a bright light and illuminating the existing inequalities in our societies. Early education is no exception. While services have been fighting to survive a complex maze of last-minute funding changes, the focus has had to be on funding and economics. But existing social justice concerns haven't disappeared and may in fact be getting worse. To discuss how COVID-19 has changed the landscape for social justice and the early education sector, Lisa, Leanne and I are joined by two very special guests. Dr. Red Ruby Scarlett is an activist, early childhood teacher, researcher, consultant, speaker, artist and academic and is the creative director of Multiverse. And Stephen Gallen is early childhood consultant with 30 years experience in the sector and is also the director of Kaongla Community Preschool based in northern New South Wales. Red and Stephen are also both conveners for the long-running advocacy and activism group Social Justice in Early Childhood. Red and Stephen, welcome to the Early Education Show. Thanks, Liam. Thanks, Liam. So why don't we look, I very much doubt there are listeners to this podcast who don't know about social justice in early childhood, but on the very slim chance that there's someone who's, uh, who's never heard of you, um, you know, Red, are you able to maybe tell us a bit about the history of this group, where it's come from and um, the amazing things it does? Well, the Social Justice in Early Childhood group began uh, in 1996. Um, it was around the Howard election. And the, in fact, there's a there's an interview that I did with Betty Hobson, bless her past soul, um, around the year of tolerance. And the Social Justice group was formed because uh, it, was, it was actually at the ECA Sydney conference and it was formed because there were issues, um, I guess, outside what people thought early childhood education was and was doing, that it needed something more. And, uh, yeah, it was formed then by those wonderful activists and we were all young whippersnappers then who uh, got involved and I guess we've tried to carry it through with that same kind of legacy since then. Absolutely. And, and, you know, it has been a pretty powerful force for for advocacy and activism during that time. And, and I guess you would probably say, Red, that there's probably still some issues that aren't discussed enough in the sector with, and uh, even in the last 1996, what's that, 24 years, that we're still, that's still a place for, for social justice and early childhood. Yeah, that's why I'm so thrilled that this show goes for about 47 weeks rather than just like a one-hour podcast. <laughs> Yeah, this will be, yes, this is part one of a 506-part special, so just to make sure we, we keep, we'll release one every day. But um, obviously, okay. one of the... Well, obviously time's mutable, because I'm sure I just heard you say that 1996 was 24 years ago. Is that is that wrong? It's, it's I think t- it's just four years ago, isn't okay. it? Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, it's too late for maths. <laughs> it's too late for maths. Lisa, you're still wearing the same clothes, but honestly, <laughs> time has moved on. And look, I'd like to quote Felicity McArdle, who says that she's not maths that's why she does art so I think let's take an arts perspective on this goes very well with activism wonderful well one of the key things that people uh, maybe most probably most associate social justice and early childhood with is the yearly conference uh, which is uh, throwing the baby out with the bathwater which has been you know a feature of professional development uh, for the early education sector for for a really long time obviously given the situation this year that's had to be done really differently. So, Stephen, I wonder if you'd be happy to maybe give us a bit of a summary of the thinking that had to go with the group that sort of manages the social justice conference. I imagine um, a lot of last-minute planning behind the scenes to to make this a bit of a different event than usual. Look, absolutely, Liam, and I I guess um, many um, people listening will probably be in a a similar boat in terms of having to get used to moving a whole lot of things very quickly um, online in a pretty ad hoc way. I guess one of the things that um, we decided early on was that we really wanted to make sure that the tradition of having that annual conference continued. So it was it was a bit of a no-brainer that it was going to have to, to probably go online. And we were a bit concerned about that because one of the things about the Social Justice Conference that is so lovely is that it's, um, it's quite um, a, a, a stable, um, ongoing continuous group but it's quite a small little conference but that's what makes it so powerful people really coming together and spending this amazing day once a year so the face-to-face aspect which of course 
is a big part of any professional um, gathering and conference, but particularly with the social justice um, and with the activists that have been, it seems to be really, really powerful. We were really concerned that, that we were going to lose that um, with the conference this year. Uh, so in the end, uh, what we found, though, was that people, we actually got great feedback. The conference went really smoothly. And I think, as Red just said, quoting Felicity, that's quite surprising for, um, I think, those who are in the sort of more creative artsy side of things. We were expecting that there were going to be uh, ridiculous technical ha uh, hassles and hitches all over the place. But it was, um, I guess, the social justice gods were on our side. Things went incredibly smoothly. And we found that the feedback we got was that it was fantastic. Uh, people really loved being able to, to plug in from places all over Australia. And that was that was some of the great stuff is that we had people who'd never been able to make it before um, who were saying, you know, this is the first time I've been able to access it and, and plug in, hear about what's going on, participate. Uh, I'm really hoping that next year you keep some online component going because I can't make it to Sydney for all sorts of reasons, but I really want to be part of this. So that was a, a lovely still aligning of what was quite a, a sort of tricky situation. Wonderful. And as you sort of mentioned there, Stephen, you, you, you think there might be some lessons from... Uh, from moving it to that online space that might be continued in future conferences? Well, yeah, it is It is tricky. I think we're still obviously really keen for a range of reasons to to maintain the face-to-face. -face. And again, um, it's really important, I guess, for the social justice group to think about the fact that the, the history uh, and I guess the local aspects of, of politics and social justice too is a really, really big element of, of the culture of the group and the conference. At the same time, there are a whole lot of people um, who have access issues and can't necessarily putting the COVID lockdown to one side for a minute, but at the best of times, um, you know, uh, are, are limited from catching a plane. They don't have the funds. Um, they're not always supported by uh, their employers or organisations to be able to, to fly off to any PD um, because many of our participants and attendees are early childhood educators. And I think we're probably all pretty aware that uh, not all of them are incredibly flush for funds. So it's, it's really important for us to be able to, to have um, those people who are interested in, and um, wanting to be engaged to be able to access it. So, yeah, that's definitely given us something to, to think about for next year. I think that's an exciting component of this. I mean, if we can look on the positive side of COVID, that it has created this um, more equal access, I suppose. And I think that's a really exciting thing to hear about with the conference, that it is opening up those opportunities. And as you say, it's wonderful to get together. But then if you're completely excluded from that, you, you can't have access to any component of that. So I think that's, that's fantastic and hopefully something that will um, continue. I think if I can just add to that, Leanne, um, you know, particularly for myself, I'm based up in, in northern New South Wales. Um, I uh, live in a reasonably remote uh, rural area. Uh, a lot of my work is, is all over the place or usually is all over the place, not at the moment. Um, so I'm quite plugged in and I'm, I'm privileged enough to be able to, to do that and access, access things. But I'm very, very aware of um, many educators not only in my region, but all throughout Australia, who who find that really challenging. And it, one of the things for me um, has been the, the, just to be able to see people in my area who have been able to come along to the Social Justice Conference for the first time this year and just saying how fantastic that, that was to actually you know, be wanting to, having it on their radar, been wanting to get along for years, and this year actually being able to make it virtually. So, yeah, I, I completely agree. Wonderful. That's great. Well, you know, it might be great to hear, um, obviously, the conference took place uh, a few weeks ago as we record this, um, but it might be just good to talk about, I guess, maybe from, from both of you, I might go to Red first and then back to you, Stephen, what I guess maybe the highlights of uh, that that day uh, was for you, whether it was in a particular presentation or particular themes that were that were covered. But um, Red, what sort of, you know, you've been um, a huge part of these conferences for a really long time. What, what stood out for you this year? Yeah, I, I I think there's there's a couple of layers for for me, and I I think the first and foremost the fact that the conference sustains because you know the bastion of the you know the not for profit early childhood group who is committed to talking about these social justice issues uh, has waned significantly you know since 1989 and progressively we've seen that and you've 
um, that, you know, the three of you have discussed that in depth in a whole range of ways through the Early Ed show over the years. Um, so it's kind of like where, where that last little tiny fairy tale on the hill that still has this tiny, teensy-weensy little not-for-profit group that runs um, a conference that is a place where people can say what needs to be said, uh, I guess, without any attachment to anything that's, well, I, I guess anything can be said there. It, I, I think, you know, and I have to be careful saying this, but but the, the Social Justice Conference has always been the, the spearhead of many conversations that then follow on from that. You know, the, the topics that we talk about, the issues that we address, the people that we bring in, they're unlike any others and you won't see those at any other uh, early childhood conferences, although the wonderful thing is that we've seen happen over the years is that once there are particular people that we invite to those conferences in early ch in the social justice group, we then see people think, oh, we might get them to speak at our conference too. Oh, so how come that's never happened to the early education show? Because you've been at every conference since you've existed. <laughs> I know, but other people haven't gone, oh, those people are really good, we'll get them. Yeah, I invite you back every year, what are you talking about? Yeah, but you do. But you said it had happened from other people. Lisa, I think that somebody might have said, let's write a book. <laughs> See? <laughs> Lisa, Lisa, um, Liam and I have both been asked as a result of the <laughs> conference, but... <laughs> for sure, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Lisa, I would like you to speak at my conference that I'm going to run. Oh, called... thank you. Yes. And I also have started Lisa Bryant Day, which is the 24th of September. <laughs> so that's coming up. There have been great knock-on effects for you. <laughs> okay, I'll stop complaining. <laughs> thank you. Um, but, I, yeah, so I, I think it has this wonderful little quirky niche and, and I think that what that means is it, it, it's really not necessarily about, oh, the Social Justice Conference did that, that must be this or that. I think it, it is, well, actually these are issues that, that need to be discussed and early childhood is a beautiful, you know, one of the beauties of it is, is that it's so small and it's so relationship-based and we really value that. I think that the social justice group has always had a tight, I guess, a bit of a wider reach to bring in other kinds of expertise to then think about what that looks like in practice and then enabled other things to go on from that. And, and so things that might seem like they're scary or things that people are fearful of or things that people don't know about because they're new to the profession. You know, we kind of have, you know, I've been around for 30 years, so I just assume everybody knows about anti-bias, for example. Yet yesterday I was in a centre and I'm talking to a gorgeous, you know, 17-year-old person who's just about to finish their traineeship and says, what's anti-bias? And I think, yeah, okay, we've got to keep this conversation going and the social justice group um, is a place for you to be able to participate in that. So it's kind of like I guess we keep things afloat that are always about keeping on the agenda that whilst there are mainstream things that are important to children and children's learning, there are particular frameworks and there are particular rules that we need to follow to and make sure that children are ready to participate in society, and we all want that. We all want children's success. The social justice group does that in an intellectual way and in a creative way. And one of the things that we've privileged right the way from the beginning, and it was funny because it caused quite a bit of a, a stir in the beginning, is that we said 70% of registrations had to be people who were face-to-face -face teachers and that 30% were coordinators or policy makers or politicians or et cetera. And it was funny that that caused a bit of a stir because um, the people who wanted to come to talk about those kinds of things tended to be people that were academics or policymakers or whatever. So we kind of like that. I guess we've really gently subverted um, who talks about these things and how these ideas get out there. But also I think the social justice group has played a really important role in, I guess, debunking that there's um, fear around particular identities or there's fear around talking about particular ways of being or curriculum content that seems to be like it's something, inverted commas, I'm 
I wish you could see me because I've got my hands going a go-go. It's partly my Italian background, <laughs> um, but partly my, my I'm a I dy- dynamic dramaturgical thespian. Um, but I, I, I think that the social justice group is a place where there there is a lot of reassurance for, you know, nobody's going to contest that children's rights are the are the foundation of, of what we work from and therefore anything that seems like it sits outside children's rights like gender or sexuality or race or diverse languages or diverse abilities are things that should be added on to the conversation but that they're central to it. And so I think that that's really important to remember that we create this this space where those things are to be enjoyed and celebrated. And, you know, the feedback is always so joyful and so love-filled because I think it reassures people that that's actually just everyday life. So we call it the social justice group in early childhood, which could be a flag to some people, but really that's just everyday life for people, but we have to fight for their rights because the way that society is structured doesn't include those people equally and equitably as those who can experience walking in the mainstream norm. Thanks, Red. I think it's definitely a theme we're going to come back to in the second half of the show. Um, not to put you on the spot, but is there, in thinking about some of the things you've just said about um, a you know people presenting at the conference who you know, we're probably going to be hearing from in the next little while, but also maybe keeping ideas and topics afloat that might not otherwise um, have the space to do so. Is there a particular session or, or, or anything that particularly happened there in this year's conference that um, that sort of stood out as, as maybe fitting one of those two sort of criteria for you? I think we, we had Professor Anna Hickey Moody who came and spoke and, and Anna has um, like – she she's she's in education more broadly and she's one of those feminist academics who began her life in education and has a really interesting story herself with the experience of disability in her family and has then moved into working with research around uh, around race and ethnicity and faith and religion and she gave this beautiful presentation about how she's been working with diverse faith experiences um, with through arts practice and I think the her, her page is called interfaith childhoods and you could probably pop that in your show notes and the thing about Anna is and and I guess the thing that she is emblematic of in terms of the social justice group is that um, to do the everyday work also means we work with big ideas. And so she was she was one of our first keynotes and she gave these examples and they were they were particularly relevant to the COVID situation because she was talking about where children were and how they represented their themselves and their identities visually through particular kinds of arts practice. And she had photographs of the towers in which many, many families and children were, you know, inverted commas, locked up in because of COVID outbreaks. And in those towers, they were encased particular kinds of faith communities and ethnic communities and racialized communities. And so what she did in her presentation was she kind of gave us this visual experience which spoke to, you know, the very young educators who thought, wow, these children are expressing it this way. She also spoke theoretically to the people like, you know, Stephen and I who've loved all these ideas for a long time. I thought, yeah, okay, we can get it on that intellectual level as well as this practical level, as well as the visual level. She also gave the the nuanced experience of families and the grief and trauma that they're experiencing through being in these buildings. And, you know, she had a beautiful photograph that had a sign on the outside that said home or something like that. And, you know, it really rang true. It, 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 it was impossible for that not to touch you in a cellular way to say that this is the experience or of injustice that people were going through. And so I think that that presentation was um, incredibly powerful because it gave those layers of children expressing their experiences of the COVID experience, of their ethnicity, of their faith experiences, and the and the complexity of trying to work that out. The other the other presentation, I mean, all of them, all of them, absolutely, 
you know, touch me every time. I'm I'm the big crier at the conference. Whilst I hold the stage, I also have the most crying, um, but I have the biggest tutu um, that Stephen actually steals from me. We'll have to have a fight about that later. Um, but um, Professor Kerry Robinson gave this incredible presentation about race and race relations and looking at the experience of the ways in which um, race relations are something that, you know, wh when we get the COVID numbers, we don't get the race relations breakdown. We don't get the the individual stories of what those experiences are like. She talked about class. She talked about those things that are difficult to talk about and they're difficult to capture in data. And the early Ed show, you are the you are the queens. I'm sorry, Liam, but you are a queen in this moment. You are the queens of data. You are the queens of tables. But Kerry, Kerry did that um, in a really exquisite way where she prompted us to think about the ways in which those global perspectives around race relations and class discrepancies are having these impact on people's lives because many people will die of COVID, but more people will die of poverty. Oh. Wow. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, hard. it's interesting. I, you know, I still uh, can remember back to my uni days and, you know, Professor Robinson doing this stuff around diversity and difference. So, you know, it's amazing that she's still, I mean, there's still a space thanks to, you know, the work you do with the social justice group where that those questions can still, yeah, come up. Um, and very happy to be a queen of data, Red. I'm happy to actually add that to my, my professional profile uh, as we speak. <laughs> um, Stephen, you know, probably, again, whether you want to maybe talk about a particular presentation or talk about it just in terms of the day, but what, you know, sort of stood out to you uh, as a as um, but I nearly said a big takeaway, which is a horrible corporate term, which I'm going to immediately uh, withdraw. But um, what stood out from you from the day? Yeah, um, look, there's a lot there, and it's really hard to it's really hard to, to top red as usual. As usual, she's sort of covered a, a million things in quite a profound way, uh, very articulately. I I guess every time I've gone along to the social justice conference over the past few years, my biggest takeaway. Um, to use that term, would be just uh, that that sense that the entire day was just so substantial. So every single presentation is so meaty. Um, it's so full of substance. And and I, I find that, you know, any conference has so much to engage you and you come away with your brain buzzing, hopefully, and lots of, lots of energising thoughts and some, you know, things that have needled you and struck you. But it's it's the entire day is really cumulative. And I think... Part of that is, as Red said, just that sense that you you really have a, a lot, a huge educator and teacher component in there, but discussing both practice as well as those big theoretical ideas. And it, that, the way that that's bridged is really interesting. And I think, as listening to Red, what what really what I was reminded of was that there's there's that sense that you use that term cellular, Red, and I think that that's there's something really visceral there for educators because when we're discussing at the social justice conference. Um, you know, whether it be things like class or sexuality or race, um, what I feel comes through really strongly is um, our experience as educators, our, our own identities and our lived experience, which again is one of those really overused terms that I shy away from using but or wanting to use. But it, it, that sense that people are really having to come to grips with the, the real politics of and the nutty, messy reality of what their daily lives as educators is like in a, in a really gut-wrenching way. Um, so there's just something really powerful about that. I think it works intellect, I think it works practically, but I also think it works really, really viscerally for people. So that was something that was that was a, a, a really strong point for me. And I guess maybe as a bit of an example of that, or slight segue, was that when Kerry was talking again, um, I think I think it was Kerry's presentation. She it, she brought up um, you know some of the the things that come up, particularly with with COVID. And I'm probably jumping ahead a little bit here in terms of where we're going to be talking in a couple of minutes, but. Um, there was some discussion then um, on the Facebook group as we went through around um, some of the responses that children have um, to the, the coronavirus and the COVID um, pandemic and the situation there and people sharing stories from their own settings about children, you know, coming up with things like being really, really scared uh, for doctors and nurses or being scared about the virus themselves or alternatively children coming up and saying things like, oh, you know, that's the, that's the Chinese virus and how we as educators might respond to 
a comment like that that a three-year-old child makes. And that sort of well, really... I think it's knocky, important to ask um, why they've been listening yeah. to Donald Trump if they're saying things like yeah. that. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, d- definitely. Um, that course, should be know, past their piece, bedtime so stuff. Have, I did suggest that they listen oh, to Donald know, Duck, but obviously that. <laughs> oh, though they they love Donald Trump, they find him really really, really entertaining. The kids at my preschool they'll they'll happily watch him on YouTube for hours. I mean, um, <laughs> they're laughing at him. Good, <laughs> but, but but yeah, I. But, but those sort of things, I think, where people can discuss that, that some, some of that stuff that, that has actually confronted, um, you know, a teacher, an educator in that moment where they sort of <clears throat> sucked in their breath because the child's come out with something really spiky and thorny or, or really quite, quite um, uh, you know, contentious to, to deal with. Um, when that can sort of be, be teased out and discussed in a forum like this, it's sort of really quite, again, there's a sense of solidarity because we realise there's other educators who've been in the same boat, but also that these things, you know, we, we can talk about them and we need to talk about them. And that was also what was really nice about the conference was that we were able, through the online aspect, there was some conversations happening um, while people were talking. So there was a, a much, uh, I guess, richer way to be able to dialogue with each other, whereas in a face-to-face conference, usually we've sort of all got to sit with, you know, being polite and listening to some amazing stuff, um, but we can't sort of be there whispering to our to our neighbouring delegate. That, that was sort of good too. Oh, I'm sure you'd whispered to me, Reggio. <laughs> can I um, can I ask you both a question? Is Never. the is the people that are the people that come to the conference are they repeat um people or are they new people every year? Okay, so that's a good question. This year was really interesting, as Stephen said earlier. We um, we the conference is always deliberately very small, and we 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 have it. We've actively had it at the Redfern Community Centre because it's on the block, and that's a very political place on Gadigal Country in Sydney. And there there was a time early days where people wouldn't go there, so we deliberately held our conference there to get people to come to the block because. They, they experienced a whole lot of cultural stuff around what it meant to be on the block and um, and it ended up always being this beautiful love-in. Like the, the Social Justice Conference has this particular effect when, when people participate in it. Interestingly, we've always had to keep those numbers small because we've only been able to cater for 100 people and every year it, it's, it sells beyond its capacity and we can't fit everybody in. This year we went online and I, I don't I, the numbers were triple quadrupled. I, it was enormous because we, we enabled people to, you know, because we're not for profit, we, we just needed to get enough money to be able to run the conference again next time. So people bought one ticket and they were able to watch it with all of their staff. I think about Paddington Children's Centre, for example, you know, they they bought a ticket that, in fact, knowing Natalie Cordukes, they probably bought enough for every staff member, but they all watched together and they, um, you know, they got together and they watched it in their own space. So the people that who would have normally come, which would have been three or four, ended up being 20 or 25. So it actually expanded the audience. And as as Stephen said earlier, there's there's benefit to that, which also came through the feedback. Um, and we also had international people, which were part of the conference. And that's really good because it helps people hear the Australian dialogue that's going on because I think it's really great. And so I feel like there were these, you know, there were a lot of positives that came out of being in that online space. So, but I think in terms of the content, there, I think the themes were also international as well. And Sorry, I, so so essentially you, you're saying that there's lot there was lots of new people there this year there, that hadn't been to a previous one. Yeah, there, there's the usual social justice people who love it. They come, they come every year. What we found this year this year was that it was expanded, and so by expanding that, it I guess it nourished the conversation because different kinds of perspectives came in or new people came in who thought, wow, I haven't heard anything like this before. And it is a bit, 
you know, we, we're not funded, so we don't have all the high-tech stuff. We we relied on Zoom and the beautiful Kate O'Hara, who is the spine of the social justice group. She won't often show her face, but she does a huge amount of work with the foundation. Um, I was busy going, oh, it'll be fine. We'll do a Zoom. We'll stream it to Facebook Live, whatever. Um, and it did work relatively seamlessly. But, yeah, we, we, we did... Uh, people who normally wouldn't have been part of it otherwise. And I think that there's, there's, we're in discussions about how do we do the face-to-face for that relational experience, but how do we do the online also? And can I just ask, um, if someone said to you both, define social justice, you've got an elevator trip to define it. So, you know, like, 30 seconds, no, less than that, yeah, 10 seconds, how would you define it? Rick, you go, Rick. I mean, I think I'll... Reggio, you go, do you you want to go? No, no, you go, all good. I think social justice is something that is a way of thinking and theorising and being. So it can be done by any person in any way at any time. And I think that the ways in which social justice in early childhood, because the minute you put in early childhood with it, it gives it a completely different context. So I think that social justice is something, it's an aspiration that we want for every single human on this planet. The problem is There are some people who are more socially just than others. There are some people who act in more socially just ways than others. And there are some people who benefit from particular ways that justice, because justice is a very fraught term, works. So I think the social justice piece is important to um, engage. Okay, your elevator has hit the top of the ceiling there and I'm no less informed, Reggio. At least you called him Reggio. (laughs) Reggio, you know what? My elevator has reason to call you Reggio. That is a huge achievement. Stephen, (laughs) can I have a concise definition, please? Well... Well, I, I mean, I think if, in response to your question about well, what exactly social justice, if I had to do it before the elevator ends, I would just basically say, you know, it's about about equity and about, you know, maybe redistributing some of the advantage because there, there's unfairness, you know, structurally and socially where certain, certain groups um, are structurally advantaged and it's about trying to sort of um, redistribute that advantage a little bit so that some other groups, some other people, some other structures get a bit of a look in. But I think I would then add to that that, you know, and this is where the elevator is going to stop. But it gets a little bit more complex and nuanced when we start adding that next bit, as Red said, which is what does social justice in early childhood mean? Um, and I think Red probably said it really well right at the start of the, the the show around the fact that you know there's a sense then when we're talking quite specifically about what we think early childhood education is within the sector and social justice in early childhood in that sense is maybe broadening that context a little bit so we're discussing aspects which sometimes don't seem to be discussed so centrally within what we mean by early childhood education and care and that's what the social justice and early childhood group is trying to bring into this stuff you know the politics of this the um, equity issues advantage and disadvantage and some of these structural I guess issues of justice um, are central to the work of early childhood education and care not sort of something um, on the fringe. Sorry, I know that's well past the elevator. You have <laughs> level 50. Open Ladies' door. underwear. <laughs> Reggio. Oh, doors open. Hello, Reggio. This is Red. Reggio, I absolutely agree. Do you know what else? That you and I are both, both of us in our um, elevator description, both masked, and that we both would say, I know us, and we would say, there are some cultural groups in society who experience discrimination for just who they are and they should absolutely not. So social justice is about saying no person, no child, no educator, no family should experience discrimination based on who they are. Therefore, the systems and structures that shape who they are 
should be ones that do not discriminate against them. And you know what? In early childhood... Dot points. Red, that's dot points. You know what? Well, thank you. I worked with a person called Lisa Bryant and she taught me to turn a book that was 500 pages into about 40 that was dot points. And I think that that's a thing... You know, we the social justice group is about all of those things, but there are people experiencing discrimination every day of their lives and they shouldn't. There are children who experience discrimination every day of their lives and they shouldn't. There are families who who experience discrimination every every day of their lives and they shouldn't. And we, as early childhood people, should be focused on that, not just because it's a great thing to do and don't we want a beautiful, gorgeous world, it's actually part of the National Quality Standard. It's part of the EYLF. It's part of the National Quality Framework. It's our job. What, what I'm hearing a lot from, from people out there is that COVID-19 has sort of upended society, but it hasn't created new inequalities for people. It's actually sort of put a spotlight on existing ones and it's sort of widened them and, and identified them in ways that maybe were, were definitely visible before, but were probably easier for people to ignore. Um, I'm going to go to probably Leanne and Lisa first, because you two haven't had to work that hard in this uh, in this episode so far. So I'm going to make, I'm going to put your brains to work now. But God, what we want to do, do is we probably... still have one? I'm yeah, listening well... to Dan Tahan, Tahan speak for an hour today. <laughs> I don't think I've got a brain left. Well, you just wake up after that press conference, Lisa. So what, I want, what we want to say is what, you know, for, for, for each of you, and I might go to you first, Leanne, you know, what um, what social justice issues, you know, the, the, or issue, I should say, has, has COVID-19 highlighted for you? Um, well, now that I've unmuted, <laughs> it was, sorry, I was saying a couple of things in there, but I was obviously muted, had made that mistake that you make on all of these platforms. Um, I think not so much not so much highlighted. Oh, well, look, it has. It's brought it into a sharp, sharp relief is the um, vulnerability of educators, particularly in uh, regional and remote areas. And uh, the, those educators who were affected earlier in the year, particularly by the bushfires, and then they've gone on to have the the um, effects of COVID and how that has impacted on their employment. They're not in not in um, metropolitan areas, so it's very difficult to even look for other work when they've lost their jobs in those centres. And, yeah, just their general vulnerability in terms of their health, the multiple roles that they have um, and how that has impacted on it. And I, I thought it was um, fantastic when Red was talking about um, Kerry's sort of layering of all of those aspects of a child's experience and a family experience. And I think that we could lay that also over the educators and and their experience um, of COVID and all of those different layers that they experience of, of vulnerability. I, I think that's a really fantastic point, Leanne. I think one of the... Uh, well, for for me personally, I should say, and I, I I should be careful saying this in front of you know two people who who run the social justice group. One of the important parts of that group for me has been a real focus on activism, and that educators have a huge role to play in combating discrimination and and highlighting social justice issues. But we also need to remember that educators themselves can be you know um, can fall victim to areas of discrimination and and social justice. As well, so I think it's great. You know, the first the first thing we're we're talking about. Um, not to put you on the spot there, Stephen, but obviously, someone who's working in you know a regional community, are you seeing some of those inequalities um, for 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 educators in in that area? Yeah, I am, and I'm I'm really um, uh, you know struck by Leanne the, the you know the fact that you used the word vulnerability because that was that was that was a key word that came up for me too when when. Um, Liam asked that question about what social justice issues might COVID have raised. Um, and I, I'm thinking here particularly, uh, you know, this one um, uh, setting uh, that's in a neighbouring town to me that springs to mind that um, had to close down um, during the bushfire season 
for a couple of weeks. Uh, it was highly stressful because they were their their, their preschool, but also the community uh, was threatened uh, by those bushfires and uh, the stress that, that they went through. And I know having had many conversations with them during that time and after that time um, uh, around what was involved there and the support they were having to give children and families while also dealing with their own concerns about their employment, uh, but also their own community and their own families um, threats to that. Uh, were absolutely massive, and the the sort of the the ongoing emotional, uh, you know, and, and financial and other sort of cost from that, and then to have COVID coming so soon after that, and you realise that you know there really isn't this buffer there um, for for educators and services uh, in many areas, and I'm thinking there's probably many places, particularly at the moment in Greater Melbourne, that are that are very much the same. Um, and again, that's a social justice issue. The fact that you know, um, there, there's no fat to be to be trimmed from some of these places and put them under some pressure, and and you know, it's it's it becomes extreme. Yeah, and it's um, also you know when people have lost their jobs, we've, through um, some of the work that I've been doing, we've been offering educators access to free professional development, and we had people who were joining that professional development who had lost their jobs, but they said they were teachers and um, other educators and they'd lost their jobs, but they said that they wanted to continue to remain motivated and engaged in their sector so that when they were re-employed, they would still feel, you know, they had that strength of their practice. And I think how many professions actually take such an incredible attitude I thought that was really um, quite phenomenal that they were so committed and wanted to return to service whenever they could with, you know, with even better skills. And I thought how remarkable that was. Yeah, it is, I, I, I think we always, uh, we're always at risk of underestimating how committed educators are to their roles despite all the challenges um and we've you know heard them referred to as frontline and essential workers you know i think the government is probably not too interested in paying them for that rate but at least we're maybe having some acknowledgement of that you know the, these are people that commit themselves to a profession when everything is sort of against mm. them doing mm. that stuff i think is fantastic well lisa it's, it's, it's time to, to pick on you what uh, what social justice challenge would you highlight during this pandemic Look, there's so many and it's everything that, you know, is normally there from who gets access to early education and care, you know, to who pays what for it and where does some of the money end up going. But once again, I'm also going to talk about educators and just because I always have to have two things rather than one thing. <laughs> um, the first thing is I'm really aware this time of the injustice that some educators have through their own social capital or, or you know, various other things, access to a lot of information about what's happening and what government are about to do and what government has done. And other educators don't have that. Um, since I've started writing opinion pieces, I get a lot of contacts from individual educators who ask me to explain things. And I just have to say after that announcement today about what Victorian educators would and wouldn't get and guarantees of employment, I was pretty inundated. And some of the educators just said, so do I turn up to work or not tomorrow? I don't understand what that means for me. And that's kind of like a pretty a big injustice compared to mm. others who can safely r rattle off their industrial rights, their legal rights, etc. But the big issue for me, a, a social justice issue for me about educators, is that we were the first ones thrown off JobKeeper. Our sector was the first ones thrown off JobKeeper. And today, in the Minister's announcement about what was going to happen to Victorian services, he made a commitment that there would be an employment guarantee but it isn't an employment guarantee. Whereas JobKeeper actually said to employers, we will give you this money, but only if you give it to employees, 
with the package that was announced today. It was, we will give you this money and we'll ask you to give it to employees, but there's no absolute guarantee that you have to. And they disagree and say, oh, sorry, it's in the funding agreement that they have to. But when you break down the funding agreement, what employers are contracted to do, what employers or business providers or owners, whatever you want to call them, are contracted to do is to give at least one shift a week to educators that they employed in in June. Now, obviously, that's a lot different than the JobKeeper thing, and that's a serious social injustice that of all the workers in Australia, the first ones to be thrown off JobKeeper were primarily women, primarily low-paid workers, and then when, you know, something new had to come in to rescue their jobs, they are the ones most at mercy of of employers. And this is also one of the least unionised sectors in Australia. So, yeah, that's to me a really shocking social justice issue. Yeah, look, I feel we almost need to devote a whole episode to that. What's always stood out for me from that the, that announcement, the removal of JobKeeper, was that despite how bad it looked, it, it, it was such an obvious uh, inequality, but the government obviously felt no compunction in doing it, obviously didn't feel that any backlash would be strong enough that it had to change, and they were proved right uh, that they... This was such a obvious and non, you know, sort of non, non invisible, which I think the word is visible, inequality. But the fact they thought that it was completely, uh, you know, something they could do, I think, says a lot about how educators and the work of educators are positioned in our society. But again, I want to—we're probably going to have to do a whole whole episode on that. But um, I want to come now to our to our special guests. Hopefully, we'll give them a bit of a break after all the the talking they have to do for the first half of the show. But um. Red, I imagine it might be difficult to to pick one thing, but is there a particular social justice issue that's been highlighted or spotlighted during this recent time of absolute craziness? I think, Liam, what happens in, in times of crisis like this is that we all go, COVID is our focus, and that's absolutely correct, that people's livelihoods, people's job security, people's families... I think that, you know, people talked about, oh, we've got to make sure that people can go to work. Well, who's who's educating? And I I have inverted commas on my fingers looking after their children. Um, who's educating their children in early childhood whilst they go to work um, in the very complex and, and the sh- constantly shifting dynamic rules of what that looks like in terms of the children being inverted commas, educated slash looked after while those people go to work to keep the economy alive. I think those two things are so intertwingled. You know, that there's been a lot of rhetoric around, oh, people don't care about the economy, they only care about um, this, they care about that. It, it's been a very binary discussion, but as Lisa just kind of said, it's actually intertwingled explicitly and that's part of the problem that is a social justice issue at the same time there's huge racism going on there's huge homophobia going on there's huge sexism going on there's huge transphobia going on so it's kind of like on one hand I don't want to burden people and say right everybody everybody's got to get all their phobias and all their isms and sort them all out But what I do want to figure out together, and that's why I think this discussion with these wonderful people on the Early Ed Show is for, is to puzzle out how do we do that when we know that you can't just focus on one particular area of social justice because it's the thing at the moment, but to realise that those things impact. For example, I know many queer educators who have lost their jobs and that's part of they're easier to get rid of when there's a pandemic on because people have to go. So racism, let's talk about racism. Uh, you know, the Black Lives Matter, anybody who stood up for that, oh, you've drawn attention to things or well, we don't want you associated with early childhood so we'll let you go. So that makes it easier. 
that the relationship between any of those inequities that people have faced for the entirety of their lifetimes come to fruition in these kinds of moments. And that's the problem with something like when we go, let's have a COVID conversation. You can't have a COVID conversation without a social justice conversation. And predominantly, there are men in early childhood, there are mostly women in early childhood. And I think that the gender inequity that is going on with this idea of employment is huge. I think that that applies to people who are employed within not-for-profit services. I think it applies to people who are in for-profit services. I think it also applies to women who are small business owners. Now, I know that that's a highly contentious issue for many, many people you know, on one hand, we applaud women for being business owners, for being entrepreneurs, for taking a lead, for being able to do things. But essentially, across the board, if we're just looking at the social justice issues that affect the identities of people who are usually marginalised, I think that there we can talk about women and the experience of, of women in those particular circumstances. So to me, I think social justice is something that makes people feel uncomfortable because it interrogates the equity, it interrogates the safety, and at a time of heightened fear in which we are, it makes those fears worse. It also enables a certain kind of prejudice to happen, and that prejudice has material outcomes by the losing of employment of people who are queer, multilingual, multiracial, faith-based in particular kinds of ways, gendered in particular kind of ways, and those things often get overlooked because we're just looking at the COVID experience. I can see that many people would call that controversial. I don't call it controversial. I call it the actual everyday lived experience of people's lives. And so I guess what I would ask people is to think, if you call something controversial, then it turns it into a flame. If you actually say there are people, whoever they are, whatever their lives are, whatever their abilities are, whatever their gender is, that they are experiencing some kind of disadvantage from this crazy, creepy virus that we can't see, that we can't control, it's having an impact on particular kinds of cultural groups. The cultural groups that are experiencing the worst disadvantage are those that are already disadvantaged. Absolutely right. I think a really excellent summary of the issues there. I think, as we've sort of been saying, the the COVID-19 pandemic hasn't created new social justice issues. It has deepened existing ones. I think we're certainly seeing this in Australia. I think anyone who's watching things that are transpiring in places like America, you know, can see that um, happening Full stop. I'd be really surprised if anyone dared to call what you just said controversial, Red, when there is plenty of research demonstrating that there are particular groups of our society that are doing worse out of this uh, out of COVID nineteen, and particularly doing worse out of government policy decision making, which we have huge control over. We know that uh, women are doing worse off from an economic perspective because of decisions made by the government. Um, we know that our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, by dint of uh, you know you know over 100 years of government policy have lower uh, health impacts have lower uh, you know lower um, uh, mortality rates and 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 more prevalence of underlying health conditions which means leaves them more susceptible to COVID-19 so the idea that you know if to, for me that's not controversial at all right I think that's that's a fact and, and part of that conversation around social justice is acknowledging those issues acknowledging uh, who you know is is likely to you know do worse under these conditions and how those are choices that we've made from a policy context and how we can and what we can do about that um yes a lot to chew on there we probably should have broken this up how many parts we say this was like 157 part episode red we'll come back to that in like part 94 or something up to the 400s liam all right well that's right well can we can we touch back like episode 347 or something can we come back to that because there's some excellent points there but just um aware of time we want to make sure we 
we hear from Stephen as well. Yeah, Stephen, very happy in, whether there's a particular issue that, that you wanted to highlight or if you wanted to just talk about social justice in the time of COVID, what's, you know, what's, what's been, your, been your thinking in the midst of, I should say, running a centre, which um, I, I'm, I'm not sure, A, how you have time to be talking with us tonight, so thank you, and B, to be <laughs> thinking about the, the bigger, when you're just trying to respond to whatever you know, the, the government has announced on any given day. Yeah, yeah. Look, absolutely. And I mean, I think I think there's a couple of things just to just to draw a line from what all of you have been saying, um, and particularly that last point of reads about you know that, that something like like COVID um, just you know makes uh, people who are disadvantaged and groups who are disadvantaged even more disadvantaged. Um, it it gets me thinking about the fact that you know social justice, as I understand it, is is so integral to what we mean by early childhood education because let's face it, one of the the disadvantaged groups um, that we are talking about here are young children themselves. You know, who in all sorts of ways, um, uh, you know, have very little uh, power, or, or whether that be economic, financial, political, cultural, um, social power uh, in, in our communities. And then, so I'm thinking sort of along those lines, uh, and particularly, you know, today with. Um, Dan Andrews uh, making some announcements uh, uh, around uh, childcare in Victoria and um, vulnerable children or children from vulnerable families who are still permitted to access uh, services, you know, and that's a really loaded term in itself. Again, we don't have, maybe that could be episode 497, we can start to unpack uh, that term. But uh, just the sense in which, you know, what does it mean um, during the, the pandemic for young children to have their access to early childhood services to be completely disrupted, sometimes to be uh, completely denied access. And I, I can sort of bring that through, um, I guess, the prism of my own experience with children and thinking about the fact that we, we were quite fortunate being in a remote area. We sort of only really closed down really with no children at all for, for a week. And then we had limited children of essential workers for a couple of weeks. And then gradually we had everyone sort of creep back in. Uh, but the impact on all of the children was was more profound than than I had imagined, and it was really sort of quite um, confronting to see uh, how long it's taken and how much work those children have had to do, and how much work we've had to do to support them to almost repair some of the the relationships. Uh, uh, and when I say relationships, I guess I mean their sense of community. And it's very easy for us to uh, to be touchy feely about, you know, that that sense of belonging or when we're talking about relationships with children, it's all the warm fuzzies. But actually, um, you know, any of us who work closely with, with young children in these settings know that it's actually quite quite practical, it's quite it's quite rigorous. These these are sort of spaces for young children that are their civic spaces, their social spaces, the relationships that they form are just as complex, um, just as knotty, um, just as vivid and rich um, and messy as the sort of uh, social and civic and, and work relationships that we all form in the broader community. So these things take a lot to sustain them, um, and they're a really, really vibrant, um, powerful part of young children's lives. And, and when you see young children start to step outside, if you like, the domestic sphere and start to enter public life, which is how I see their their engagement in early childhood services, and the, the you can see the horizons opening up for them in so many ways, and I would describe that um, as political for them as much as anything else. They're having a political experience of what it's like to engage with peers in community, um, to have that sort of ripped away uh, from them and then for them to have to start to put those communities back together piece by piece and how how much those little communities um, within those individual services have sort of been ripped apart, that to me is quite staggering. And I see that very strongly as a social justice issue. And it seems that's often um, that, that perspective on their experience as part of that is often um, has been really, uh, I guess, missing from the, the national conversation around this stuff. I think so. That's that's for me what's what's jumping out at the moment. Wonderful, thanks, Stephen. I think it's obviously really important to highlight the the experience of children during this. One of the things I think about, I don't work directly with children anymore. I'm fortunate to work with five early childhood centres, and I'm occasionally allowed to come in and cause chaos. Is that um, and I guess this is the story for early education full stop, is that we won't necessarily know the impact of this crazy time on children for quite a while. So we're sort of living through this moment now with probably a combination of both being overly dramatic about the impact and maybe not at, the, at this moment understanding the real impact. There might be things we don't see at the moment that might, might impact on, on children. 
You know, Liam, sorry, I was at Clavelli today and um, I'm lucky enough to teach there one day a week and it was really interesting because um, a child came to me with a bug in their hand and there was this whole conversation about this bug and one of the children said, could it be COVID? And I think that mm. the... I think that the, converse, the COVID conversation is something that we're having as adults and we should and it's something that we're having with a whole lot of uncertainty and we're having with a whole lot of these elements of social justice in twingling around it. But what I think, you know, the beauty of what Stephen has raised is that, that, that the impact of what this means for children is one thing but the reality of what their conversations are is something else. That the fact that a bug would normally die because of a superhero, a bug would normally die because of a something or other. But the fact that this bug died because of COVID um, is is something that is in. And these the, these particular children were three and four years old. So this is something that I think you know I, I, I don't I, I don't like mass hysteria I don't want people to be panicking but the reality is this is in the vernacular of the everyday conversation of what children's lives are and so and I said oh yeah that would be terrible if it died of COVID what would that mean and then they said oh let's make a mask for the bug and you know they went into all these you know, <laughs> they were very Dan Andrews about it um, but you know there, there was they knew all the rules to put in place which is actually quite fabulous and I, I felt very committed to the natural quality framework lucky I've written a musical about it um, but you know it was really interesting to see the way in which that children very young children knew these these kind of practical strategies about how to have a relationship with this this creature that they would normally puzzle over, explore, put in a magnifying glass, blah, blah. You know yourself, you find a bug, the interest, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so I think that the fact that the COVID was their decision about its death um, created these other ways of knowing and being. And so I think that the COVID experience of social justice is a complex one on many, many levels. And I think everybody's spoken about that this evening. What it also does is, and I think we have to see silver linings. The silver linings is that children are opening their minds to things and we are challenged. I, I as a teacher, was challenged to open my mind to things that I didn't expect. And so to be able to engage in those conversations, not to enforce rules, but to be able to say, yeah, to care for each other, to actually create a society where people do everything that they can to be together, to be alive, to be safe, means that we do all of these things. And to honour those who pass because of this thing that's happened, I think that there is something, there's, there's another story to be written, there's another narrative to be told that that can also help us rewrite um, the I was going to say doom and gloom because I'm also in the doom and gloom as well. But I think that they're finding those other little little shoots of, of, of hope and positivity are really important because I think that our conversation has to be complex. And I think that um, that moment today was one of those moments for me. Just and I think that's what Tamika was saying to us a couple of weeks ago too, Red, was the resilience that she was seeing with the children was this hope that was being offered up there. And, and I think that that's, you know, I know you're saying you don't, you're not in the optimistic, you're in the doom and gloom, but there are these chinks of light in terms of the, the resilience and, the, and children's response and the world that they're drawing us into. Yeah, and 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 I to, that's a gift, you know. When when Stephen says children are leading us into these things, there are things. Adults are all puzzling it out. We're watching the news. We're listening to the politicians. We're following the advice. We're doing all the things. And and I I urge, implore, I beg everybody to do. At the same time, children are drawing us into these other storylines, which correlate. They correlate beautifully but they help us bring new kinds of understandings that sometimes policy doesn't, but pedagogy does. And I guess the message is that 
in all of this, follow the rules, stay really close to what governments are asking us to do, not what the, the broader, you know, um, conversation is asking us to do, but also be, if you're with children and you're in those situations, enable that imagination because there's something really special and caring and relational that is about building community. And essentially, building a strong community means building a strong nation, which means good literacy outcomes, good numeracy outcomes. I don't have to go down that track, but essentially that's what it leads to. So I don't want to do I, – I, I worry about the fluff versus the stats kind of dichotomy, but I do believe that good relationships in early education means that we get all of those gorgeous things afterwards. And so to me, today was one of those moments as a teacher in a centre, you know, standing there with this bug in my hand and listening to these children. I thought, yeah, okay, we've got somewhere to go here that I hadn't have thought of. Well, yeah, wonderful, Red. I think that's a really positive space uh, to leave the conversation. I think it's really hard to find those glimmers of hope uh, for, for all of us in the moment and probably for listeners out there. But that, that 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 fundamental part of our work under the earliest learning framework and our you know curriculum pedagogical approaches is about meeting children where they are now it's this endless you know the battle we have in the sector about some people thinking the work we do is about preparing children for these things that are happening in the future whether it's school or employment or whatever when actually what the curriculum is about is where children are at now and this is happening to children now so accepting that gift as you said red i think is a really wonderful place to end the conversation so um i want to just thank red ruby starlet Stephen gallon again for for joining us uh, for this conversation and i think probably particularly for red who this is the second uh recorded conversation you put out today after a facebook live earlier red so we're really really grateful for for both of you for your time tonight thank you so much we love the early education <laughs> lisa Leanne and Liam, we've got to get the L's right. We adore you. <laughs> and we missed having you live at the uh, conference this year, so this has been a nice, uh, nice way to, uh, to do something instead. You have been listening to The Early Education Show. You can find show notes and links for this episode and all our other episodes at earlyeducationshow.com. The show is hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs and Liam McNicholas and produced by Liam McNicholas. The music is by Jazar at betterwithmusic.com. Please subscribe, rate and review the show in the Apple Podcast Store. It really helps others find the show. Get in touch with us at Early Edu Show on Facebook and Twitter or send us an email at earlyedushow at gmail.com. See you next time.